a group of very wealthy men went up to the Buddha one day and said, we think you've got it. We think you've got the right way, but we're really wealthy. And uh, let's face it, we can't just drop our responsibilities. We have countries to run, money to spend, family to take care of. We can't just take up a bowl and robes and go wandering in the forests. Isn't there some way that people like us can get to heaven? And Buddha said, yeah. He said, there are four states of mind that if you can live in these ways of being, then you'll be living in heaven. And those four states of mind we call loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. They are called in the language of Pali, which was the first language that Buddha's teachings were written down in. Uh, They're called the Brahma Viharas. Brahma is uh, very high or holy and divine, and Vihara is a dwelling or an abode. So they're the divine abodes. And um, they are an important part of our practice. And they're also a part of its culmination. It's like if you want to work for peace, work peacefully. So as we move toward this way of being, we actually practice being that way. As we sit in meditation and engage in the practice called life, over and over again, we let go of ways of thinking that cause suffering to us and to others. But there's also the element of cultivating ways of being that bring happiness to us and to others. And so these Brahma-viharas are things that we want to cultivate. We want to intentionally encourage them to grow. There's a very well-known Vietnamese monk named Thich Nhat Hanh who says, you water the crops, not the weeds. So we want to bring (coughs) our attention to these states and encourage them to flourish. We can do this either on the cushion or, according to the Dalai Lama, in our daily lives, particularly in service, which is an opportunity we seek out to actually practice 
these four states of mind. All of the Brahma Viharas are based on a fundamental notion that we're not separate beings, that we're all in this together. In fact, we all are this, but that's another whole Dharma talk. We we need to acknowledge and to come to see that the things that separate us are illusions. And one of the main things that separates us is our suffering. Ironically, it's also one of those things that can connect us. See, normally we think that happiness is an accumulation of pleasure. And so we accumulate pleasures. We chase after them and we hold on to them and we try to get rid of any displeasure that we have or avoid getting any more. And I think in the back of our minds, most of us suspect that the reason why this never really works, and it never does, is our fault. That we just haven't gone about it the right way. That if we maybe had a few more pleasures, we'd be happy. But what this does is it separates us from ourselves and from each other and creates a lifestyle of competition. And it's, it's easy to see that if you just look around. These Brahma Viharas are ways of feeling our connectedness with other people. And they're the natural way that a Buddha feels toward the world. They are Buddha's legacy and they're our birthright. And they will bridge this feeling of separateness and allow us a a, a different kind of happiness than the one we try to achieve through pleasures. You know, the problem with pleasures is that they depend on so many things that are not under our control. And contrary to all of our assumptions, real happiness depends on acknowledging this, that we can't control it. And opening to the fact of all that is true right here and now. 
because that's the only place and time where we live. The Brahma Viharas uh, have been a very important part of my practice and I discovered them when I first went to work at the Zen Hospice project. I, um, I volunteered there because I thought that I would gain wisdom. I would hear it from the lips of people drawing their last breath. And, uh, you know, people who are dying really aren't any more wise or not than, than anyone else. But I did learn uh, to my surprise this very important truth of non-separation. People who are in hospice um, look different, a lot of them. You know, they're... um, They're very sick, they're terminally ill, they have a prognosis of less than six months, and they have elected not to get any more medical treatment that's aimed at a cure, uh, just comfort care. So, you know, I walked in there and what do I have to offer? You know, I don't have any medical training. I went to law school for Pete's sake. You know, I don't, I don't come with anything that I can give someone in this situation. But you know what someone wants the most when they've lost everything. They're at the end of their lives and they're suffering. They just want someone to be there. They just want someone to be there with them, fully present. And I've learned that this is at the heart of what we all want from each other, essentially. We just want people to really be with us. And that kind of uncompromising presence requires an awareness of all that is in the current experience. So there I am, I'm sitting at the bedside of someone who can barely talk. There's not a lot I can say. All I can do really is to accept the truth of what's right here. This person and this person. And to 
acknowledge the full truth of my experience, some of which is not pleasant. I, I have a little fear, maybe a little repulsion, maybe even a little queasiness. And there are thoughts and feelings going through my head, some of which I, I don't particularly like. I'd like to suppress them. But that closes a part of me off, and then I'm not fully there. So this gift that I give this person is to hold my heart open to all of that. The part that includes them, that's my experience of them, and my experience of myself, my dark as well as my light side. And the result is that they can feel it. They really know when someone is fully there. A really good example of someone who's fully there probably is the Dalai Lama. I mean, everyone who's met him says that he treats them as if they're the person that he most wanted to see right then. That after a while with him, they feel soaked in love. And I've had this experience myself, and I was sitting in a, a stadium with thousands of people. But what he did, his, after he gave his Dharma talk, or his teaching for the day, it was several hours, his handlers started to guide him off the stage, you know, back into the wings. And he stopped, and he turned, and he walked out right to the lip of the stage. And he bowed to us all. And I don't think there was a dry eye in the place. I felt like he had just bowed to me and that there was an open respect and kindness that he was feeling toward me. And that, that was my experience in the hospice, too. That by being so present with people at the bedside, something came up in me that was a really powerful, loving force. And... That's the mind state that we call loving-kindness, or metta. In Pali, metta is loving-kindness. Compassion is called karuna. Sympathetic joy is called mudita. And equanimity is upekka. So when we're aware of our connection with people, we feel this friendliness toward everyone. 
not just uh, the people we know and like, but people we don't know, people we don't like. And having that open-hearted respect for everyone, we naturally care when they suffer, and we rejoice when they're happy. And then equanimity enables us to stay balanced, to stay even through all these changes, all the, the, the up and the down of life. When we practice meditation, or sitting meditation, for uh, development of metta, we repeat phrases that give rise to the feeling of metta. And this is, again, to cultivate this new way of loving. Because let's face it, we don't usually have that open, expansive love uh, just ordinarily. In fact, all too often, our love is um, driven by um, fear or desire. We fall in love because we're tired of being single or we like being seen with this person or um, we're afraid of being lonely. Whatever. I feel like I should issue a word of caution here. You know, don't feel like there's anything wrong with the way we love. I mean, it's all good. I wouldn't want anyone to, you know, go home and break up or get divorced or whatever because they're not feeling meta in their relationship. You know, it's all a mixed bag. But what we can do is um, try to nurture those feelings that are in our hearts that are respectful and kind and um, at least try to imagine letting go of the feelings that are more uh, attachment and aversion (laughs) there's that too that are in our relationship actually attachment is the name of what's called the near enemy of metta. All of the four Brahma Viharas have both a near enemy and a far enemy. And um, attachment is sort of like when we make the bargain. I used to call the beginning of any relationship the negotiation period. You know, it's like, I'll love you if you love me. 
and if you'll show it by doing X, Y, and Z. But the, you know, the problem with this is that it does look like, the, it looks like the real thing. But it's, it brings us back to that separateness, that competition. You know, it's me and you and not, uh, not so much us, really. So um, this near enemy that we can fall into because it looks like, looks like love. Everybody calls it love. It can be just as dangerous as the far enemy, which is outright ill will, because it, it does look so much like the real McCoy, when it's really just it's a decoy to, uh, that draws us away from what will actually make us happy. I mentioned earlier that um, my practice of the Brahma Vihara started at the hospice where people are different. And I think, uh, I think in, in coping with that, learning to deal with the difference of someone who's really sick, I learned this, this fundamental truth that we're not separate from each other. Um, e you know, even though someone who's had a long illness, their, their bodies, I mean, they really they look like someone who's about to die. And they look different and they smell different and they're shut away in a different place. And when you first encounter, uh, you know, as a new volunteer, I thought, it was very easy to think they really were different than me. But as the months went by and I saw enough people go through the transformation, you know, I met them when they were fairly healthy and then they got sicker and their bodies began to change. And I came to realize that they weren't any different. We all die. We all have these bodies. And if we die of a long illness, they're going to go through these changes. It's, you know, old age, illness, and death. We all have that potential suffering. So it's not your suffering or my suffering. It's, it's really ours. Those years, over the past ten years, I've spent about five uh, working with people who are dying. And, and they've taught me to see the real being inside this crust of suffering. 
and to know that, you know, it, it could be my suffering. There is a feeling that comes up for me when I recognize this kinship between your suffering and my suffering. And that's, that's called compassion. And it's just natural. We, we all respond with that. There's something else that we respond with, too, sometimes. And again, this is the near enemy. There's a stirring of the heart that happens when we're facing someone else's suffering. But we're not mindful of that connectedness. And it's like we say, gee, I'm sorry that you're suffering, but I'm kind of glad I'm not. We call this pity. And it's not a very satisfying feeling. Looked at from the perspective of our interconnection, when we open our heart to people who are suffering, it doesn't hurt. There is a, a sadness, uh, an awareness of suffering that passes through. That's the only way I can express it. But if the heart is open enough, there is a spaciousness that can hold it. And that doesn't lose sight of all that's uh, true in our experience. And there's a great comfort in knowing that we can be present with the good, the bad, the liked, the not liked, that we can be there with it. Because when we see that our minds can be spacious enough to hold all that, we get an unshakable faith in ourselves and in life. And we know that no matter what happens, we'll be okay. And also, from this perspective of connection, it's very easy to see how the sympathetic joy works. That if we can be open and hold the suffering of others, then of course we can be open to and hold their joy.
And that multiplies the happiness that we have in our lives. The, um, the near enemy of this empathic joy, uh, well, let me put it this way. If you don't have that perspective of connection, how do you react when you hear about someone else having good fortune. Let's see. Gee, I'm glad you got that great job. I have a good job too. I make more money. Or, I'm really glad he got that award. I'd be really happy if I got it too. This is called comparison, this near enemy. And it's kind of an icky feeling. It's nowhere near as wholehearted and joyous as true mudita. Because we're focusing on our own pleasure at good fortune. And we're not really opening to the experience of the other person. We're, we're still keeping our, ourselves separate. The far enemy is pretty uh, obvious again, and it's just resentment. Darn, how did he get that job? You know, I should have had it. So finally we come to equanimity which is about balance. And uh, some people think that balance or equanimity is the sine qua non of the Buddhist way of life. Completely steady. It is the ability to meet whatever happens with ease and let go of all desire for things to have developed differently than they have. To be at peace with the truth of what exists in this exact moment. There's an ancient phrase uh, in the uh, practice of equanimity. Uh, you know, these phrases that um, you do Brahma-vihara practice with. And the really old one goes, we are all the owners of our karma. Your happiness depends on your past actions and not on my wishes for your happiness. I find that a little emotionally unsatisfying. Uh, and I think to a lot of ears, it's kind of harsh. It's like, maybe it's your fault that you're suffering. 
that's not exactly what it says, but it's it's hard sometimes to really grasp it. So most teachers encourage people to come up with their own phrases. And the one that I have come up with is, may the suffering you encounter open your heart wide enough to hold all that is true in this moment. So in the sitting practice of equanimity, we wish for people to have this steadiness. And sometimes it can get confused with indifference. You know, there are a lot of people who kind of rush to the conclusion of their spiritual practice and, oh, it doesn't bother me. Well, that's indifference. And it's uh, not really caring about what's going on. I mean, it shares the outward appearance that the person doesn't lose their head when the situation gets intense. But with real equanimity, you're fully engaged in what's going on. But there's this spaciousness of mind and openness of heart that sees that all of life is filled with a thousand joys and a thousand sorrows. And true happiness really lies in acknowledging that. Uh, The old, not old saying, but there's a saying around, you can't stop the waves but you can learn to surf. And equanimity is where you learn to surf. So the near enemy is indifference, where you have the look of calm, but without the connection. And the far enemy is greed and aversion, which brings us full circle to the causes of suffering. All of the Brahma Viharas lead to each other. If you follow any one of them far enough, you'll get to all of them. And they lead to the core truth of what Buddha taught. And they all balance each other. If you're going to work in a hospice or a jail, you will either develop compassion or you'll become increasingly deadened to life. And you had better develop equanimity or you will burn out like a meteor. So they all have their role to play. There was a patient at the hospice who has a story that really demonstrates uh, how the Brahma Viharas work. 
he was an old timer. He came in originally with a very short prognosis. And when I started there, he'd been living in the hospice ward for six years. He, <laughs> he just thrived. He got there and people showered him with love and care. And, and uh, I was talking with him one day and he said, you know, I was never happy until I came here to the hospice. He told me that what he had done was he had watched the way the volunteers and the staff treated the other patients. And he had begun to imitate it. And after a while, he realized that he had learned to love. And that he had learned to love himself. And that for the first time in his life, he was happy. So there he was. He was living in the hall of death, as we all do. But he had found happiness through the divine abodes. So I'll invite you all to do a little stretching, moving, whatever will ease suffering and increase happiness, and to ask any questions that you might have. Yes? They're informed that it's a Zen hospice, um, but they're not there to practice Zen Buddhism. They're there to die. Uh, it's the volunteers who are practicing Zen Buddhism. It's in San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. And I guess it gets to a question that um, there's a, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a lot of sayings that uh, sometimes sound harsh, but I, I always remember reading one. One of the great, what a, what a great joy it is to die somewhere forgotten, all alone, uh, unentangled or encumbered by family. And uh, I have a friend who worked in, as a social worker, and his job was that so much that the, of the suffering that happened around the death of a family member was in all the other family. And the Tibetans would talk about that would make that process very disturbing for the person dying. And even to the extent of people thrashing around and moaning and groaning after the person that passed away. And, and I was just wondering if people make that choice to sort of separate themselves from that, to die, um, you know, in this sort of care of loving strangers. Well, they're not isolated when they come to the hospice, the, the family and friends visit. But there's a well-known phenomenon called the coffee break death, which is where the, you know, the family and the friends are around 24 hours a day waiting, doing the death watch. And finally, they have to go out for a cup of coffee or something. And that's, that's when they...
take their leave. They just wanted to be alone. That suffering that you mentioned, um, rippling out, I think that that is one of the uh, big gifts that, that we could give family was to model calm. And sometimes it would even ease the suffering of the person who was dying. Any other questions? Yes. In a situation like that, if you if you are crying, is that considered to not showing equanimity? Is that considered to be not 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 appropriate? That's not right. I think crying is a very appropriate response, and um, I've heard one teacher. The story is the student asked what is the end result of a lifetime of practice? And the teacher said the appropriate response. Equanimity doesn't alleviate the hard feelings or the the natural reaction to them. It just opens the awareness to like a larger vision of life so that we're not in a tunnel vision with our grief or whatever. Does that make sense? Okay. I use a lot of the same language that uh, we were given uh, when we were trained in the hospice project. We were given just terrific training, uh, 40 hours. Oh, and we had the privilege of paying for it too. Uh, 40 hours of, of training and then continuing education every month. And this story I heard on the Brahma Viharas was very early in that process. So, are you ready for the quiz on what the near and the far enemies are? things about faith is that it comes kind of gradually from seeing that things work. And I'd been meditating long enough that I had seen that it, it really worked. It did things for me um, that I 
I was surprised by. And the teachers who had taught me about meditation were also saying that, and in particular Ram Dass and Stephen Levine, were also saying that uh, working with people who were dying was just this rich opportunity to grow spiritually. And that it kind of, I think it was Ram Das who said it, kicked his practice into overdrive. And he also said it was better than any drug he tried. But it, the way he described it, the way he and Stephen Levine described it, I just, uh, I thought, well, that's for me. You know, I'm, I was in my 40s when I started practicing in earnest. And I thought, I want to make up for lost time. I had no idea how it would work. But I trusted them. I had faith. Yes? What are some of the things meditation has given you? Well, I think my strongest motivation uh, in the beginning was that um, I have a a neuromuscular disease and there's a lot of pain with muscle cramping. So immediately, um, meditation brought me comfort because, you know, when you relax, the pain actually goes away. And for the part that didn't go away, um, meditation enabled me to be with the feeling of, of discomfort. When I teach at the drug court, I say immediately you'll get relaxation and your stress level will go down. And if you do some meditation every day in a month, you'll notice that your judgment starts to get better. And then your relationships with other people will get better. And if you keep doing this long enough, something spiritual will start to happen. So that's that's what happened with me, those things. How about you? And that's enough to keep you coming back to it. Well, I guess I have a sense that there's a lot more than what I've gotten so far. And I suppose there's certain times when I've been very anxious and I've had someone kind of um, keep me focused on being present. The anxiety was great. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, as it goes through us, we go through it. And it really is the only way. Yeah.
Yeah. Was she ever in prison about with hospitals or was it more general? Actually, the work I did in prison was tangentially with the women, the inmates who were working in the hospice. They were the ones who were the most interested in um, having instruction in meditation. And they were wonderful women. It was, uh, it was kind of like a visit to um, uh, some saints. You know, they, most of them were there on a life sentence. And one of them said to me, you know, when you're in this situation, you either become an angel or a demon. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to practice. Because, you know, as you said, it's, it's the only way through it. Yes. So when we're in the presence of someone who is suffering, um, sometimes we'll grieve, sometimes we'll open our hearts to encompass much, if not everything. Sometimes we'll suffer. To what extent is that suffering of our own creation and the narrow that we drive into ourselves? Oh, I struggled with that terrifically. Um, the, the break that I took from hospice work was uh, when a partner of mine was dying from cancer. And afterwards, I grieved. I grieved hard and long. And I would go to different, every Buddhist teacher I could find, and I'd say, why am I grieving? Shouldn't I be wiser than this? My heart is open. Why, after a year, am I still suffering? Am I not doing this right? That first arrow can be a blinger. You know, the second arrow really only comes into play when for some reason we get attached to the suffering, to the grieving. And I think that a lot of the literature on grieving addresses that. You know, people who for one reason or another are having trouble moving through the grieving process. And, you know, one of the secondary arrows is blaming yourself for not being able to move along. So, you know, whatever your experience is, that's what it is. And the place to start with not adding suffering to it is right now. You know, this feeling of this isn't right. You know, the the feelings that you've had that it isn't right are, you know, just let go with them, but don't add the next one. That's just what's happened. Did that make sense?
Thank you. Has everyone had an opportunity to do meta practice? Okay. Is there anyone who has never done meta? How about ending with just a few minutes of meta practice? So just take a position that's comfortable, not rigid or trying to look like a Buddha or anything. And uh, if it's more comfortable, let your eyes close. And bring to mind someone that you care very much for. You're very happy there in your life and there is no negative undertow. And imagine yourself saying to this person, may you be happy. May you be at peace. May you live with ease. May all the joys of life be yours. And see if you can, with that same feeling, say to yourself, may I be happy. May I be at peace. May I live with ease. and know all the joys life has to offer. And imagine expanding that feeling of loving kindness out to all people, people near and far, people you know and don't know, people you like and don't like, people everywhere throughout time. May all beings be happy. May all beings be at peace. May we all live with ease and enjoy every happiness in life.
Thank you.